Well, we're currently finding ourselves in a sermon series that I've called The Tapestry. Uh, It's this idea of tracing the threads of God's redemption through the arc of Scripture. And we've been looking back at how God moved through human history uh, to, to come to reconciliation, to restoration uh, through the cross. But it's, been, it's being done in the mess of humanity. We, we saw last week that, that Abram had some uncouth behavior um, in Genesis chapter 12, and uh, God doesn't shy away from giving us examples of this, not that that's how we should model our lives after, but that God is in the business of, of working amidst the mess to bring about his purposes and his restoration. And as I said last week, we took a deeper dive into God's call on Abram, and we're going to be on Abram, later renamed Abraham, for the next few weeks. And he was a significant person in history. You know, all three of the monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam trace their biological and spiritual heritage to him. Now, while Abra- Abraham had, has become a significant figure in history, the favor that God bestowed upon him wasn't based upon his own actions. We saw this last week, that God's blessing was about grace. It was undeserved merit. Abram hadn't done anything to earn it up until that point. And we saw that God's faithfulness wasn't dependent on his good behaviors and even virtue, but that God remained faithful to Abram even when Abram had been faithless. And so this week we're going to see another story that communicates the same idea. God's favor being bestowed upon Abram, irrespective of the contributions that Abraham makes to the relationship. I'm sorry, I'm like going between Abram and Abraham um, synonymously, so I apologize if that's giving you whiplash. So this morning, we are going to look at the covenant that God makes with Abram, ratifying these promises that we saw last week in Genesis 12, right? Those three promises were that Abram... Abram would have land, that he would have a people, a nation, and that he would have a blessing uh, from God, that God would bless him, and that through him, God would bless the nations of the world. So if you would pull out your Bibles or Bible apps or whatever you want to follow along with, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15. And we'll look, like we did last week, we'll look at the entire chapter in, you know, three or four chunks. I'll read it, and then I'll, uh, um, you know, break it down a little bit. Now, just, just to give you the highlights of from where we were last week, you know, what happens in Genesis 13 and 14. So, you know, Abram was in Egypt where we last left him. He leaves Egypt. Um, He's resettling Canaan, and his nephew, Lot, is with him, and their servants start to bicker with one another, and so they decide to split up, and each take different areas, and Abram basically gives Lot the first choice. Lot, you go where you want to go, and there's plenty of room for all of us. I'll go with whatever's left. So, they separate um, Lot kind of finds himself in the midst of this war between, you know, uh, tribal um, leaders, and uh, he becomes a spoil of war as these kings are conquered. And so Abram, we find going out to rescue him, and Abram brings back Lot, and he brings back the possessions of all these, these kings who had lost all their stuff. And, you know, the text is very clear on a couple of items. The first is that Abram doesn't take any of this for himself. Uh, he basically says, look, I, I want to make, sh- make it abundantly clear that I'm not wealthy because, you know, you all gave me stuff to thank me for uh, getting your stuff back, but that it's because of God's blessing. And then secondly, he gives a tithe, which is just a Hebrew word that means tenth, a tenth, ten percent of his stuff to uh, this cryptic figure named Melchizedek. Now, if you've been following along on this Bible reading plan as we've been going on on Saturdays, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we see this name Melchizedek come up again. 
And we don't really know a whole lot about him. There's not a lot of history that he's in. Um, He's a very intriguing figure. He's described as, so Melchizedek, which literally means king of righteousness, is what his name means, and he is the king of Salem, the king Shalom, king of peace. And so this is clearly a figure that is important because Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, and I think part of that is because, sorry, I'm I'm getting lost in the weeds a little bit, but Melchizedek is not just a, he's a priest of the Most High God, Uh, he is also um, a king, maybe he's a prophet, you could probably uh, argue that he is, so there's these kind of three Hebraic roles that Melchizedek fills all three, whereas once you have later in, in Hebrew history, Israel history, you know, there are the prophets, and there's the priests, and there's the kings, and so Jesus kind of unites those again, which is, I think, why he's of the order of Melchizedek. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's just bringing us up where we are. This is Genesis 15. Follow as I read 15 uh, verses 1 through 6. After these things, right, what, the stuff that I just told you about, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So after all those things that I shared, God appears in a vision to Abram. And Abram has a little bit of a gripe with God, right? That promise that God made and back in Genesis 12, is still unfulfilled. He's still childless. The current heir to his property was not his own flesh and blood, but a man named Eleazar of Damascus. He's probably a trusted member of Abram's household, or maybe a trusted servant. Maybe think of, for those of you that know kind of the the later part of the book of Genesis, think of uh, Joseph as he is kind of this primary servant in the house of Potiphar. That's probably what Eleazar was like. Um, And and, and I want to pause here because I think there's something for us. So God had made this promise to Abram to provide a nation that would be through his biological child. And as that promise is still unfulfilled, what we kind of see Abram doing here is parading this, this Eleazar before God. Like, right, here's your heir. Right? Like, you said I was going to have a child, but maybe like this is what you meant. You know, is this the lineage that I'm going to have? Um, Abram's kind of trying to shape what his current experience has been around what he perceives that God had, he had heard God say. Now, I don't know if that resonates with you because, you know, maybe you've prayed for something, but it doesn't happen the way that you asked God to move. And so instead, you do some mental gymnastics to fit your experiences into God's plan. Instead of taking God at his word, you know, we, we might try to rationalize, we might try to distort what's happening around us to fit the narrative of what we think God would want. And I, I don't know why we do this. I know that I found myself doing this. I don't know if it's like a coping mechanism to avoid disappointment or, you know, perhaps we're, we, we think that we're doing God a favor, doing some PR work on his behalf. But, 
you know, we, we see this, this tension here with Abram in the text that, you know, God, you promised me an heir. Uh, you promised me a tribe, but here's my heir. And maybe that's what you meant when you said that. But God's response to Abram is to restate this promise that he made back in Genesis 12, that there will be a child, his own flesh and blood will be his heir. And then he magnifies, he, he you know, escalates the stakes by showing him all the stars, that that's what his descendants would look like. You know, it's something that I know is hard for me to re- recognize because we live in the city where there's a lot of light pollution and you know, I, don't, I don't know the last time I saw the stars and their brilliance. I mean, imagine how overwhelming that would have been. You know, God's saying, like, if it's, this is confusing, let me make it abundantly clear to you what I'm promising. Then, then what we see in verse 6 is that Abram believed it and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word believed is literally in Hebrew the word amen. It's, this is what the Bible means by faith. So let it be. Not just, I know that the English translation uses Abram believed him, but we often use, I don't know, belief to be like this intellectual alignment, intellectual agreement with something. But faith is, is trusting that what God said is true, that it'll take place. And we see that verse picked up a number of times by New Testament authors to, to bring together this expression of a connection of faith and what theologians call the imputed righteousness of God. Imputed just means it wasn't something that we earned. It was something that was kind of put upon us, not because of what we did, but it is a gift. It is grace. Now, God doesn't just stop there. Let's, let's keep going. Genesis 15, 7 through 11, and we're going to see God take this promise up a tier. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So he just had promised children again, and now he's promising this land. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, this is a pretty graphic portrait. Abram's like sawing these animals in half. Blood, I'm sure, is going everywhere. Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to understand the historical concept of the covenant. Now, covenants are kind of like our modern-day understandings of a contract, but maybe a bit more binding. We, We label marriage as a covenant, but really, we treat it in our society more as a contract, right? And with the right lawyer, you can kind of get out of it. But covenants were definitely stronger oaths, as we're going to see here in a minute. Now, the most common form of these covenants was made between something called a suzerain and something called a vassal. A suzerain was like a conquering king or a lord. Vassals were the recently conquered subjects. So when a new territory had been conquered, the residents would need to pledge their loyalty to that new sheriff in town. Now, these covenants had had six basic parts for them. The first part was the identity of the suzerain, the identity of whoever this master was. And and look at, you're going to see some of these elements in our text. Look at verse 7. God here is identifying himself. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Secondly, The second item that was in these covenants was the history of the relationship between the two parties. 
you know, so-and-so conquers so-and-so, perhaps. But here, what we see in the rest of verse 7, it, it describes their relation to that point, right? This is Yahweh, the Lord, who had called Abram out of the land of Ur in order to give him the land of Canaan. That is their relationship to this point. Third, the obligations that were upon the vassal, right? What did, the, what did those who had been conquered, what did they have to do to pledge that fealty and loyalty? Now, in its original context, it's very surprising that this is absent from the text. There is no listed obligation of fealty or faithfulness described for Abram, and we're going to come back to that when we get to the last chunk of Scripture of the passage. Four, and again, we don't see this specifically here, but uh, usually what would happen next is the deposit of the copies, right? So they would, you know, write this down, and those copies of their, their treaty would be placed in the temple of the god or goddess. Again, we don't see this here, but an example where we do see this scripturally is the Ten Commandments, right? Moses comes down from Sinai with these law of the Lord. You know, a lot of people like to uh, think that, you know, it's like Ten Commandments, so five were on one or five were on the other, or perhaps the first four were on one because those are kind of like, what does it mean to love the Lord? And, you know, Commandments five through ten were on the other because that's like what it means to love neighbor. But actually, historically, what would have been would have been two copies. All ten were on one stone and all ten were on the other stone. Now, does anyone know, I'm asking this hypothetically, you don't have to answer, where were those Ten Commandments placed? They were stored in what? The Ark of the Covenant, which was stored in the tabernacle, the temple of the Lord. So again, we see this covenantal, this ancient Near Eastern covenantal language in the, the Old Testament as well. Anyway, that's a little bit of a, dig- a digression. Fifth, divine witness to the treaty, right? The, the Lord is divine. He is, uh, you know, the Lord entering into this co- covenant. There's no higher authority to testify to than himself. And then finally, the sixth item that we see is blessings if the treaty is fulfilled, curses if they are not. And as for the blessings, they're going to come in the next portion of what we read, um, of the text that we read, the curses, this is where we get back to those bloody animals of the passage. So Abram is instructed to take these animals, cut them in half, and create an aisle with the dead carcasses flanking the middle. Again, blood running down the middle. It's pretty, pretty gross stuff. But the symbolism is very significant. When making a covenant, the parties would walk through those animal pieces And what's communicated is those curses. In essence, it's saying, if I violate the terms of this covenant, let what happened to those animals happen to me. That's what was being communicated in these covenants. It was a binding agreement with severe consequences if you violated it. Think like the, you know, the Godfather movies. It's, It's the equivalent of like waking up with a decapitated horse head in your bed, for those that have seen that movie, if you have not kind of gross. You know, just again, another aside, um, back in the day when people would get married, you know, you you might see aisle runners, and now they're all white, but they used to be red. And the reason they used to be red is for this reason. It was meant to be symbolic of this blood that in in these these kind of old school covenants. Um, And and again, I think that if we treated uh, marriage with that level of, you know, if I violate this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me, we, we might think a little differently and, and treat our marriages a little bit differently. But again, that's, that's the, the aisle runner. The history of the aisle runner comes from, from passages like this. 
All right, uh, let's keep going back to the text. I'll bring this home, I promise, in the end. Genesis 15, 12 through 16, and this describes the rewards, the blessing that would come from the Lord. 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I don't want to go too much into this, but just a couple of notes on, uh, on this. Verse 12, Abram falls asleep. You know, you might think like, man, lugging around all those like cow pieces is really like tiring, you know, maybe that's what's going on. That's not what's happening here. This is not a sleep of exhaustion, but this is a divine sleep, right? This is the same word that we see used of Adam in the garden when he fell asleep so that God could take the rib from him. So this isn't, like I said, this isn't just Abram's worn out, but that God is putting him to sleep, right? It's divine sleep. This, and this, in this dreamlike vision, God is giving Abraham the, the, the benefit of foresight to know what's going to happen to uh, his, uh, I said ancestors, his descendants, excuse me, his descendants in the centuries to come. And what we see is that for 400 years, they're going to dwell in a land that's not their own as slaves, Clearly a reference to what comes uh, later in the book leading up to the Exodus, the events from Abram's great-grandchild, Joseph, to their deliverance under the leadership of Moses. And 400 years, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a precise amount of time. Um, Oftentimes, you know, they they wandered for 40 years. Uh, Was it to the day, like 365 times 40, carrying the leap years? Or it's meant to be symbolic of a really, really long time, several generations, then in verse 14, they'll be rescued from their plight with great possessions. This is, we see this fulfilled, Exodus 12, 35 to 36. The Hebrew people ask the Egyptians to, to borrow some of their jewelry on the night that God sent them out. You, you could argue that they plundered Egypt, but really this, I think, how we're supposed to understand this, to use language that is modern uh, for us to understand, is this was reparations for the generations of slavery that they worked unpaid. I think that's how the biblical text would see that. Lastly, there's a comment in verse 16 that their return will coincide with the height of the sin of the Amorites, right? The Amorites were people who lived there in Canaan. And this is linked later in, um, after the Pentateuch, actually, with the book of Joshua under his conquest. And, you know, I don't know when. We'll get to there eventually as we go through this. I'm not, I mean, who knows how long it'll take us to get through Genesis. But, um, you know, just to kind of foreshadow that a little bit, uh, this is some of the the uh, potential biblical and theological warrant for the the genocide that we see later uh, in the conquest. Um, It's possible, again, we'll unpack this as we get there, Uh, it's impossible to understand that the Hebrew people are meant to be uh, used as, uh, and um, uh, to be used as God's judgment, uh, that, that God is judging the nations using it, and we see similar things with the Babylonian exile. Anyway, the point of the passage right now is that God's telling Abram what's going to happen, reinforcing these promises, right? You are going to have people, you're going to have land, and blessing is kind of implied. Let's get to the final part of the chapter, and this is where, man, I love this part where we see God, example of God's audacious grace and mercy. So Genesis 15, 17 to 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, I want us to think about the ramifications of this passage. Think about this in the context of the original hearer. Remember, Abram, is, he's still in la-la land. He's still in this divine sleep from before. And what we see in verse 17 is this flaming uh, torch, this smoking fire pot appear, and these are meant to be representations of God's presence. This is the same kind of imagery we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. God's described as a consuming fire, right? When, when they were wandering through, the, the Hebrews were wandering through the wilderness, God was a, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. There's no question that it is God who appears here. And what does God do? But he passes through the pieces of the animals. Verse 18 clarifies what's going on. On that day, it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The the Hebrew, it's an idiom. A Hebrew idiom literally says that God cut a covenant, right? Implying all the cutting of the animals that had been taking place. Reinforcing those dissected animals. What God is doing right here is unconditionally pledging to Abram that his offspring, A, will exist, and B, will take possession of the land. But as I mentioned previously, we see no requirements for Abram to fulfill. There aren't any pledges that he is making. He is asleep. He's not joining God on that promenade through the animal carcasses. Now, I don't know if if you're able to see how mind-blowing this is. Because in this covenantal, uh, this, this suzerain vassal covenantal language, it was unusual for the suzerain to walk through the pieces of the animals because they were the ones with the power. They were the ones who got to set the terms, and they would not normally take the consequences of the covenant upon themselves. It was for their subjects to make sure that their subjects stayed in line. But here, the roles are reversed. God does the unthinkable, right? He is walking through the animal parts by, or however the smoking fire torch would have made its way through those animal pieces, by himself, thereby taking the consequences of the covenant on his own shoulders. Now, this leads us right into what I want us to take home from this text this morning. Like last week, I want us to truly marvel at the grace of God. Last week, we saw an example where God's faithfulness to Abram was on full display, that Abram had acted unfaithfully, but God continued to provide for him, provide for his household. And this week, we see the same theme, but in a different way, that God walks through the pieces of the animal alone. And what that means is that if God violates the terms of the covenant, God's going to suffer the consequences. But you know what? If Abram, and I think by extension his children, violate the terms of the covenant, God's going to suffer the consequences. Let me say that again. If God breaks this covenant, he pays the penalty. But if Abram, and we know God's, he's faithful. He's not going to break the covenant. That, that, there's no risk involved for him taking on his own responsibility here. But Abram, who is not walking through there, if he or his descendants break the covenant, God also is paying the penalty. 
right here we see a statement that God is promising. He is covenanting to take on the consequences of our disobedience. We see an incredible foreshadowing here of the fulfillment of these promises some 2,000 years later in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we see in this story is an unconditional, like a, truly an unconditional relationship between God and Abram and his descendants. We might understand that, right? We, we know, we say God loves us unconditionally. But I think we often live as if, as if our relationship to God was conditional, that it's based upon our behaviors. This is what breeds legalism in our lives, breeds legalism in the church, that I have to perform a certain way to either get God to love me, right? That, that there's like a brokenness in that, that it's like uh, God doesn't love me, you know, unless I'm like, I need to earn his love, or okay, I know God loves me, but I need to keep performing so that he doesn't stop loving me. This is at the core of the gospel, something that's easy. I know I need to be reminded of this regularly. Jesus has paid the penalty for my disobedience. Therefore, God's disposition to me is not conditional on my behaviors. This is precise. I've shared this a number of times. The gospel-centered life, it's what this curriculum teaches by Surge. It used to be World Harvest Mission. And I go to this well a lot, but it is something that, man, I just, I, I constantly need to be reaffirmed in. Because I forget. You and I we cannot add one iota to our salvation. We know that. But we cannot add one iota to the love that God has for us when we're found in Jesus Christ. We cannot act, live our lives in a way that moves God's hand to love you more than he already does right now. Conversely, I believe that when we are found in Jesus Christ, that there is not a thing that you can do to get him to love you less than he does right now. Now, this is a pretty audacious claim. And I think what comes of this is a dilemma, at least in my life, begins to form. If God's love is unconditional, and I don't have to live a certain way, why bother? This is something the early church called uh, antinomianism, literally against the law, a rejection of it, right? Because if my relationship to God is not based upon how I perform, why bother performing at all? Why go through the difficulty? Why not coast and take the easy route, right? If God's, God loves me, he's going to forgive me anyway. Why bother? Now, Paul deals with this exact question in the, early in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 tells us all about the forgiveness that we've received in Christ, right? that God showed his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that just as we are dead, we were dead in Adam, that we've been made alive in Christ, that through the grace of Jesus, we experience this forgiveness, we experience new life. Romans 6 verses 1 through 2, Paul writes this. He says, what shall we say then? After saying all this stuff, what shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul's taking the next logical step in this rhetoric that he has put down. If Jesus has given us grace because of our sin, and grace is a good thing, why not just keep living the way that we've been living so that grace kind of compounds on itself? You know, st store some like Roth IRA sin for, I don't know, grace. That's, 
Terrible analogy. That's why I don't think of my feet too often. He's saying, why, why not bother continue just the way we're doing? Because you've already said this is good that we've received this. And then an- he answers this hypothetical. Paul answers this hypothetical question in verse 2. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Literally, he's using, it's called the opative. It's a, it is the strongest tense, uh, strongest negation that you can mutter in the Greek language. It's, it's more in line with like an exact, it's not, you know, by no means. It's more of an exasperated, like, heavens no. Or frankly, more like hell no that you might hear. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, if you're going down this rabbit trail, you veered way off the path. The tension is resolved in this because our faith is not based upon what we have to do, but what we get to do. And let me say that again. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there are no more musts in God's economy. The conditional relationship uh, uh, the, the if-then has been removed. And as a result, and this is what we see in Abram, we, in this covenant with Abram, God has taken on those consequences. We don't have an iota of effort that we have to put into it. And what this gives us is true freedom. Not pursuing obedience because we must, but because we're overwhelmed with the love and sacrifice that God has shown us. That because of this this abundance, we want to, we desire to live a life that is pleasing to Him. We don't fear the, the consequences of our actions. That's not why we live a certain way. We're not trying to just like, you know, get fire insurance, stay out of hell. That's already been done. But we obey because we delight in knowing that God has blessed us and we want to bless Him as well. God established his unconditional covenant with Abram roughly 4,000 years ago. And in this instance, he's foreshadowing another unconditional covenant that would come through the good news of Jesus Christ. That while we were a broken people, we were leaving a wake of destruction in the path of our bad decisions, Jesus would be the one to suffer, not us. Jesus would suffer the consequences of our violations when he hung there on the cross. And this is grace. Grace is a gift of God that's given us freedom in his kingdom. Now, as we think about this, here are some things I want us to reflect on this week. Here's this. Are there situations, this is kind of that opening with Eleazar, are there situations where you might stretch or distort to fit Uh, whatever you're experiencing into your perspective of God's will. Why do you do this? Secondly, why do you think, or what do you think God's promises of people and land for Abram look like today? Like, for instance, you know, like, should this passage affect the way we view uh, the nation-state of Israel? I'm not telling you how to feel about that. I'm just saying, you know, there might be connections there that we should be thinking about. Lastly is this one. This is the one that I I think is the big one for us to focus on. I want to invite you to think about what is it that you're going to do? What are you going to do for God's kingdom now that you don't have to do anything? You are free to do whatever you want, so what are you going to do to bring glory to God? All right, let's pray. Lord, you have shown us these experiences 
written them down, recorded them, so that we might see the truth of your love. That there is no angry God of the Old Testament and loving God of Jesus in the New Testament, but we see that through the scope and the arc of the Bible, you are faithful and you love us deeply. You've shown us here in this passage of Genesis 15, God, how much you were willing to suffer for our disobedience. Because Abram and his descendants broke the law over and over and over again. And we have broken the law over and over and over again. But Jesus, we see that while you hung there on the cross, you paid it all. You took on the consequences of those actions, that disobedience, and you freed us from any culpability on them. May it not be an opportunity for us to engage further in sin, engaging in cheap grace, but may that motivate and tune our hearts out of just an overwhelming abundance of love for you to live in the way that you have called us to, for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.